Let's bow our heads and, and pray and ask God for his help. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we need to hear from you this morning because uh, we really do trust your word is able to make us wise. It's able to encourage our hearts. It's able to lead us to action. It's able to transform the brokenness that we see in this world. And so we ask that you would do all of those things and so much more this morning. We really do trust that you will. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, like many of you, I spent this week uh, scrolling through Facebook and, and watching news articles about the devastation that's going on in Houston. And, and I'm sure that you would agree with me. Those videos were just so difficult to watch. It, it was just heartbreaking. I mean, and it wasn't just the fact that there were homes and cars submerged underwater. I mean, that's horrible. It really is. But I think what was utterly heartbreaking for me to see was just the, the helplessness in people's faces. Like, I saw this uh, picture, maybe some of you saw it as well, a, a horrific picture of elderly men and women uh, in a nursing home. Maybe some of you saw that. Uh, when I was reading the article, it said that on Monday morning, water had started to gush into the building, right? And that water started gushing into the building, and that within 10 to 15 minutes, this water had now filled up the room. It was waist deep in that nursing home. And now they're sitting there in that nursing home, some of them in wheelchairs, some of them hooked up to oxygen tanks, and they're, the bottom half of their bodies are just sort of floating in water. And they're sitting there wondering if and when someone would ever come to come and rescue them out of this nursing home. As I was looking at that picture, it was just so hard for me to see. I, just, I, was, I was wondering what was going on through their minds as this was happening. How did they respond? Or I saw one video of a woman. She was actually on FaceTime with Good Morning America. Maybe some of you saw that as well. She was standing on the roof of her apartment with her son and dozens of other people. Now, she had called 911. She had called people on her phone, contacts on her phone. She had reached out to people on Facebook, but there was nothing, right? No food was coming. No uh, rescue wasn't coming. There was no warm clothing. It had been 48 hours being on top of that roof and there was no one coming to rescue her. And here she was on national live television pleading for someone to just come and rescue her off of this roof. I remember this particular part of the video. Towards the end of the video, she's uh, about to close off, and she says, please hurry. She says, the, the water keeps coming faster, and it keeps rising. I'm really scared. And that's how the video ends. And my heart just sank as I was watching that. I was just wondering, how does this happen? Right? Why is nobody going to rescue her? Uh, what do you do? And I'm sure there was countless of other stories just like that. Stories of people feeling so powerless. Stories of people feeling so helpless. What a week this has been for the people of Houston. But you see, you and I have lived long enough to know that stories of helplessness aren't just found on the other side of our country. Right? Now, there are, there are stories of people who are in great need all around us. Like, like just this week, we received, some of us received a, an email from a friend about a friend. Her house, her neighbor's house had caught on fire earlier this week, and it caused damage to her own home. And so all of a sudden, unexpectedly, just out of the blue, she now finds herself with no place to live. She doesn't have access to a car, and she's sort of scrambling, reaching out to everyone that she can know, she knows, trying to figure out what living arrangements for her and her son would look like in this coming week. 
But again, it's not just out there. It's not just someone else's story, right? Some of us sitting here this morning, we too know what it looks like to be in need, to even feel helpless. Some of us sitting here in this morning, this morning in this room, could share stories of having to live life with illness or disease. Some of us wake up every morning feeling worse today than you did the previous day. Or some of us sitting here this morning, I've spoken to some of you, are dealing and battling with anxiety or depression. And so just the the thought of getting out of the bed on any given morning seems like a monumental task. Or others are dealing with chronic illnesses. And so you're living in this constant pain. And sadly, the idea of living in constant pain has become this new norm of life. And you see, it's not even just physical pain, right? Some of us are struggling with really hard and difficult financial hardships. Some of us this morning, if we were to be honest, have no clue how we're going to pay for our bills this month. The bills just keep piling up, and the checks feel like they just don't come fast enough. Some of us are literally trying to figure out, are we going to pay for rent this month or buy groceries this month? Or for some of us, it just feels like when it rains, it just pours. You lose your job. Your, your, your car stops working. It feels like your relationships are falling apart. And you just wonder, when will you just catch a break? Right? When will this all just come to an end? What does life, what is life that it would be like this? You know, friends, you and I don't have to turn on the news to know that we live in a world filled with people who feel helpless. Because you see, not only do they live in Houston, they're sitting right next to you. And so the question that we must ask ourselves this morning is this. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to to respond to those who are living in need all around us? We see that the text that we're looking at this morning actually helps us to consider that very question. And so if there was this one big idea that I want to drive home for you this morning, one idea that I want you to take home with you this morning, it would be this. That God blesses those who help the helpless. God blesses those who help the helpless. So we're considering together this morning Psalm 41. It was the the portion that Joe just read to us. This is a portion uh, that was written by King David. And so I want to invite you just to open it up, look at it together with me. And so basically he does two things in this psalm. First, he describes to us the blessing that comes from helping the helpless. Right? He would talk to us about the blessing that comes from helping the helpless. And then secondly, he will compare these promises of blessing with his own life, right? You get that? So first he'll explain the blessings that come from helping the helpless, and then he'll spend a portion just comparing these promises of blessing with his own situation, with his own life. And so let's consider the text together. We're just going to read actually the first sentence just to get started. We're looking at Psalm 41, verse 1, just the first part. We'll actually be camping out here for the majority of the sermon, so don't get scared. We'll be moving on, but Psalm 41, 1 is what we're considering right now, right? This is what it says. It says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, it's important for us to notice that Psalm 41 is actually the final chapter of book one of the Psalms. 
Now, if you, were, if you remember, if you were with us in the beginning, we said that Psalms is actually broken up into five books. So, for, for example, if you look right now, right above chapter 42, you will see book two, right? That's the beginning of book two. Well, book one begins with chapter one, and it ends with chapter 41. And see, when you realize that, you also realize something else, that this book, book one, begins and ends by calling us to happiness, It begins and ends by calling us to blessedness. If you remember back to when we began this series, we began by looking at Psalm 1 together. We said that in in chapter 1, David teaches us that blessedness, which can also be translated into happiness, blessedness is experienced by those who rightly relate to God. Blessedness or happiness is, is experienced by those who rightly relate to God. So David said, listen, Do you want to be happy in your life? And all of us would say, yes, we do. Well, David would say, well, happiness comes from delighting in God. Happiness comes from delighting in God's word. And now, in chapter 41, we see David sort of teaching something very similar. He's saying, listen, this same happiness, this same blessedness is not just found in rightly relating to God, it actually is found in rightly relating to one another, right? If you want to be happy in your life, it doesn't just mean you rightly relate to God. It also means you rightly relate to one another. In fact, David says, happiness is found in rightly relating to those who are helpless. If you want to be happy, you should rightly relate to those who are helpless. You see that word poor in verse 1? It can also be translated as weak, or powerless, or helpless. And so David, what he's saying here is essentially this. He's saying, helping the helpless will lead to greater happiness for you. Helping the helpless will lead to greater happiness. Now, I don't know about you, but I sort of struggle with that idea, right? The idea of helping people so that it can lead to greater happiness or joy for yourself, it seems a little bit off to me, right? Like, I I always cringe. I cringe when I hear people say stuff like, you know, helping this person made me feel so good about myself. Have you heard somebody say that before? I cringe when people say that. It, It makes me feel like saying, listen, so were you actually helping them or were you helping yourself by helping them, right? In fact, my daughter Asha, she's seven years old, she said this to me one day. She said, Dad, it made me feel so good to help those people. And I basically scolded her. I yelled at her, right? I was like, what? I was like, are you crazy? I was like, you can't say stuff like that. I was like, we don't help people so we can feel better about ourselves. We help people because they need help, right? That's why we do it. By the way, I'm offering a parenting class in the fall of anybody. <laughs> great, great tips I can offer you. But I did. I, I, I literally, I mean, if you can ask her, I, would, I scolded her. I said, that's not how you think about it. You don't help people to make yourself feel better. You help people because they need help. But you see, this week after studying this passage, I feel like maybe we were both right. Right? I mean, sure, we don't help people so that we can ultimately feel good about ourselves. If our sole reason or our sole motivation for helping people is just to feel better about ourselves, I think something can really be off about that. But you see, this passage teaches me that helping the helpless is meant, it's meant to lead us to happiness. 
Helping the helpless is meant to lead us to happiness. Listen to what David says. He says, blessed, happy is the one who considers the poor. Blessed or happy is the one that considers the poor. Listen to what a pastor named John Piper says about this. He says this. He says, what should motivate a joyful Christian to cross the street and help a man who has been beat up by robbers? The answer, I think, is something like this. When I see an injured man across the street, his hurt is like a magnet to my God-given joy, which has in it the compulsion to expand itself. My joy desires to increase in, in seeing his joy restored. This prospect of greater joy in his joy is my motive for crossing the street and helping him. What is Piper saying here? He's saying that helping someone who's helpless means that as their joy is restored, your joy increases. Right? You consider that? As their joy is restored, your joy increases. Now, you hear that, you hear Piper say that, and you hear David talk about that in verse 1. But I think if we were to pause and consider that for a moment, I think we'll realize how contrary that is to our normal, everyday thinking. Let me ask you, when you see or hear about someone who is in need, if we were to be honest with each other, in, this, in the safety of this room, right, what are some of the initial thoughts that come to your mind? We'll think things like, what's it going to cost me to help this person? I mean, what will I need to give up to be able to, to tend to this person? Will it require a bunch of my time? Because I don't know if I have a lot of time. Will it require a lot of my money? Because I, I'm, you know, I'm struggling myself. Basically, the question that we ask ourselves is, what's this going to cost me to help this person? But you see, it's almost like Psalm 41 is flipping this question on its head. All of a sudden, the question is no longer, what will it cost me to help? But instead, the question is now, what will it cost me to not help? What will it cost me to not help? What am I forfeiting in not caring for the helpless? Right? What am I giving away or giving up by not being generous, is what David is saying. Now listen, the phrase considers the poor that we see in verse 1 means much more than just having compassion or concern for people, right? I think when we watch the news reports about what's going on in Houston, I think most of us really do have compassion. It's genuine compassion, right? Our hearts break when we see the destruction that's going on in Houston at this moment. Our hearts break when we see the helplessness that we see in people's faces as they're going through what they're going through. And we're even concerned right? They're worried about what's going on. They're troubled by what's going on. But you see, this, this phrase, considers the poor in verse 1, it actually means much more than that. It isn't simply compassion. It isn't simply concern. The phrase implies something much more than that. You see, it's being thoughtful, right? It's being practical in determining how to help the helpless. It's being thoughtful and, and practical about determining how to help the helpless. Listen to what a pastor named Charles Spurgeon says. He says this. When we're trying to figure out how to help the helpless, it says, They do not toss them a penny and go on their way, but inquire into their sorrows, sift out their causes, study the best ways for their relief, and practically come to their rescue. In other words... Considering the helpless 
requires work. Considering the helpless requires work. It, it requires thoughtfulness, and it requires action. Let me give you an example. And Sibi had mentioned this earlier, right? This, earlier this week, as we were learning more about what was going on in Houston, some of us received an email from Ebby Phillip, who belongs to our church. So he, too, had been watching the news and, and seeing all that's going on. And so the email was being sent to try to figure out, hey, listen, we as a church, what should we do about what's going on with our neighbors down in the south, right? What should we do about that? And you know what? That email prompted us to now respond with thoughtfulness and practical ways of responding. In fact, it caused some of our GCMs this past week to gather together and to be able to pray and to ask the Lord's help for what we can do. It, it, it caused some of us to start researching, hey, they need money. How should we be going about giving them money? How do we go about giving them financial help in a way that it would be most profitable? It caused, it caused us to even connect with some of our road in Houston to try to figure out, hey, we know that you need help on the ground. How can we be of help, right? You see, Ebby saw the helplessness in Houston, and it led him to thoughtfully and practically come to their help. And what David is telling us is that the blessed life, the happy life, is found when we thoughtfully and practically help the helpless. And you know what? That's not even it. You see, the blessedness that God promises isn't just even a feeling, an internal thing, a, a feeling of joy or happiness. It's more. Consider what David says. Look at verse 1b down to 3. It says this. It says, In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Would you consider what David is saying in this list? I mean, it's a pretty lofty list of things. It's pretty heavy, right? Consider what David is saying. David is saying, listen, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. And if you consider the poor, this is what God promises you. That in the day of trouble, the Lord will deliver you. The Lord will protect you. The Lord will keep you alive. You will be blessed. You will be called blessed in the land. You won't be defeated by your enemies. The Lord will sustain you on your sickbed. And if you're ill, God will restore you to full health. Look at all the things that David promises will be a result of helping the helpless. If you consider the poor... This is what God promises you. Can I be honest with you? This passage messed me up this week. It messed me up this week. I really struggled with these verses. You see, as I was spending time studying this list, I just could not understand how the Bible could make such claims. I mean, it would take me two seconds to come up with a list of Christians who are committed to helping the helpless but find themselves struggling in their own lives, who have no shortage of their own troubles, who have people calling them all sorts of things besides blessed, who will eventually lie in their sickbed and die. And so I just didn't know what to do with these verses. How can the psalmist make such a strong claim about something that seems so untrue, so unreflective of what's going on in this world? How did David... 
have the audacity to sit down and, and pen these words and ignore the tension that exists between what he's writing down on the paper and what he sees in the world. How does he ignore that tension? Well, that's when I realized that David actually doesn't ignore the tension at all. No, in fact, he uses verses 4 to 9 to highlight this tension, to describe, actually, when you consider my own life and these promises, I see a disparity. Look at what he says, starting in verse 4. He says, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. And when he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. We read through verses 4 through 9, and it seems like David is describing a time in his life where he's going through sickness. Now, there aren't any real clear references in the Bible about David being sick, but it seems like that's what's going on here. Because how do we know? Well, verse 4, it says, Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And then in verse 8, it says, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. So it sounds like a, a real a, a serious thing is going on in David's life, right? This is pretty serious. He's not just battling a common cold. It seems whatever this was, it seems like he was on the brink of death. Now, a, a quick note, right? You may have noticed in verse 4, David says this. David says, heal me, for I have sinned against you. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. It seems like David, in examining his own life, makes a connection between his sickness and his sin. Right? He sees his sickness, and he sees his sin, and he sees that there's a correlation between the two, and it leads David, David to, to confess his sin to God. Now, here's the thing. While that is true in David's case, because he says it's true, the Bible would warn us against connecting the dots between all types of sickness and sin. Do you hear that? The Bible would warn us against, you know, making connections between all types of sickness and sin. And for example, in John chapter 9, a blind man is brought to Jesus and his disciples. They bring him to him and they ask, listen, Rabbi, who sinned, right? Was it this man or was it his parents that caused him to be blind? And Jesus responds by saying, listen, it wasn't him or his parents this, this man's blindness has nothing to do with personal sin of any kind. So you don't have to think that way. Or, or you see another example in the Old Testament of a man named Job that some of us are familiar with, right? If you know the story, you know that Job is going through one instance of suffering after the other. And so his friends waste no time to come to his help, right? They come and they consider what he has to say and what do they do. They say, listen, we see what you're going through. And we have concluded that you must have done something. There must be some sin in your life that's causing you to go through what you're going through. But you see, the scripture makes it really clear within Job that that wasn't the case. Sin wasn't the reason for Job's suffering. And so the Bible would warn us against jumping to the conclusion that all sickness, the sicknesses that we go through, the sicknesses that I personally have to deal with, is rooted in sin. 
But for David, in this particular case, his sickness becomes an occasion for him to repent of the sin that he is aware of. He sees a correlation, and so he repents of that sin. And so he prays. He says, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. But you see, not only do we see David praying for grace to be forgiven of sin, he also prays for grace to be delivered out of his suffering. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay him. It's like David is saying, Listen, Lord, you, you promised. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. You promised that. And as the king of Israel, I have done just that. I've cared for those who are helpless. I have provided for those who are weak. I was thoughtful and practical about coming to their aid, but my life looks nothing like what you have said. I mean, you said, Lord, that people will call me blessed. But instead, they want to know, when will I finally die? Right? When will my name perish? When will I be wiped off the face of this earth? David is saying, listen, you, you Lord, said that in my illness, that you will restore me to full health. But people are talking. And they're saying that my sickness will be the death of me. They say that I won't even raise up from the bed that I'm lying in right now. And you, Lord, you're the one that said that, that you won't give me over to my enemies. But, but forget my enemies, even my best friend, the same guy that I had trusted, who I treated like family. We shared meals together. Even he has turned his back on me. Lord, my life looks nothing like what you have promised. And so as we read through verses 4 through 9, we watch David lament line by line over the reality of his condition. Lord, you said one thing, but my life seems to be saying something completely different. You promised one thing, but the conditions of my life seem to be completely different. Let me ask you, Seven Mile Road, have you ever been in that place before? When you're doing what God says, but it doesn't seem like it's leading to deliverance. Where it just feels like one hardship after the other. Or maybe you feel like, you know, I am giving myself to caring for others in their helplessness, but it doesn't seem like anyone is coming to help me in my own. Well, if you find yourself in that place this morning, I think you're in good company. Because that's exactly where David finds himself as well. He's saying, God, you said one thing, but the circumstances of my life say something completely different. And that's why I think David's declaration in verses 11 and 12 feels like it comes out of nowhere. It feels like it comes out of left field. You almost feel like, is this the same guy who's writing these verses? Who is this? Listen to what David says. He says, By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. You see, though everything about David's situation would say otherwise, 
though David has every reason, every reason to just give up hope, just to throw in the towel, David instead chooses to trust that God will, God will indeed do what he has promised. You see, David believes that his enemies won't triumph over him, even though right now, if you look around, it seems like they have the advantage in every way. He believes that his enemies won't triumph over him. And you see, the reason for that is because, you see, for David, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. He's not going to turn to any other direction. There is no plan B. He will continue to trust God even when things don't seem to add up. He will continue to help the helpless even when there are no blessings to be found anywhere. Against all odds, David has chosen to place his trust in God. And because of his integrity, he knows, he says, he will stand before God's presence forever. Would you take a notice of that word for a moment? David says, because of my integrity, you have upheld me. Because of my integrity, you have helped me. And you want to say integrity, right? How can you say integrity in that, in that, in that verse? I mean, aren't you the same David that just confessed sin a few verses ago? How can you confess sin and claim integrity out of the same mouth, right? How could you do that? Well, David would say you can. You see... David would be the first one to admit to you that he is not perfect, that he is, in fact, sinful in every way. You saw him claim that in verse 4. You see him claim that in other Psalms. You see him claim that within the other scriptures. But he will also be the first to tell you that though he is not perfect, he's still a man of integrity. And the question is how? How can that be true? You see, David is a man of integrity, not because he is sinless, but because he continues to trust in God. He continues to trust in his promises. Though his life is falling apart, he will continue to help the helpless. Even when things are not panning out the way that you would have imagined, he will trust God. Even when he lies close to death, he will trust God. Even when it seems like his enemies are about to destroy him, he will trust God. Some of our road, shouldn't that be our confession this morning as well? Shouldn't that be the cry of our heart as well this morning? We're not perfect. But at the end of the day, you and I, we have no plan B. There's no one else that we're going to turn to. There's no one else that we're going to seek comfort from. Because no matter what our current circumstances may be, we will say, we will trust God. We will trust God. And you see, because of that, you and I can truly identify with David in Psalm 41. But somehow, wrote, there is one person who can identify with Psalm 41 better than any one of us can. Because you see, there is no one who has helped the helpless more than he has. And there is no one who has been more thoughtful more practical than he has been. You see, though you and I tend to count the costs before we even think about helping someone, he, he broke the bank for the helpless. Though he was rich, he became poor. So that you and I, though we are in poverty, can become rich in him. 
And though you and I tend to analyze whether someone is even worthy of being helped, he chose to help us when we were at our worst. While we were still weak, the scripture says, while we were still powerless, still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And you see, though no one has helped the helpless more than Jesus has, he too would identify with David because he too failed to experience the promises of God. You see, on the day of his trouble, the, door, the Lord did not deliver him, but abandoned him to death. On the day of his trouble, the Lord did not keep him alive, but allowed him to die, to even be crucified. Though he had done nothing wrong, he wasn't called blessed, but instead everyone spoke ill of him. They even considered him to be cursed. In fact, David can so identify with Psalm 41 that he even quoted, I'm sorry, Jesus can so identify with Psalm 41 that he even quoted Psalm 41 on one of his darkest days. You see, as he was sitting around with his disciples, right, eating his last meal before being put to death, he agonized over being betrayed by a trusted friend. And he said, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. But you see, unlike David, and unlike you and me, he has no sin to confess. No, Jesus could only confess integrity. He has always trusted the Father and his will and his promises completely. You see, though his present circumstances seem nothing like the promises of verses 1 to 3, he too trusted that his enemy would not ultimately triumph over him. Even when things weren't adding up, there was no plan B for Jesus. He was going to trust God, and he did, all the way to the cross where he died. And because of his integrity, it says that the Father upheld him and raised him up from the grave so that Jesus now stands at the right hand of the Father in his presence forever. Brothers and sisters, David is a wonderful example to us this morning. But you see, Jesus is our only hope. And because he lives, we should give our lives, we should give our lives to helping the helpless. Whether they live down in Houston, or they live across the street, or they're literally sitting across the room from you right now, we should be thoughtful, we should be practical, we should help, even if there are no blessings to be found. Why? Because Jesus has been raised from the grave. Jesus has been raised from the grave, and because that's true, we can be even more sure than David was that God will indeed keep his promises. You know, in my mind, I almost imagine it that a billion years from now, maybe we'll all sit around together one day, and we'll look back to verses 1 to 3, and we will say he was right. He was right. We have experienced unending joy. We have experienced unending joy. We have been delivered. We have been rescued from our enemies. We have been restored to full health. And so whether in this life or in the life to come, Seven Mile Road, we have no reason to doubt God. God will keep his promises. And may that free us to thoughtfully and practically 
help the helpless. And may the certainty of our coming blessing cause us to join with the psalmist in verse 13 and say with them, Blessed be the, the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray.